Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 261, Response to Bowman on the Bible and the Trinity. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I am going to respond to some blog posts by Dr. Robert M. Bowman Jr. Just a few days after my presentation called How to Argue that the Bible is Trinitarian, he put out a couple of blog posts on his website called Dale Tuggy and the Biblical Basis of the Trinity, and there are two parts to that. Part one is called Are the Essential Elements Missing? Part two is called Is the Doctrine of the Trinity Incoherent? You may notice that this episode sounds a little different. It is a little different. I'm sitting on my back porch on a slightly drizzly but otherwise nice early summer day here in Middle Tennessee. You're going to hear the neighbors mowing, the birds singing, the doves cooing, possibly the neighbor's stupid dog making noise, and things like that. So my family's making a lot of noise in the house today, and I thought it'd be easier to do it out here, and thought maybe you wouldn't mind a little bit of a chirping bird ambience. Before we get started, if you don't know Dr. Robert M. Bowman Jr., he's an evangelical apologist. He does a lot of cult response type of work. He's worked on the Bible and the Trinity for a long time. Dr. Bowman is the author of somewhere around 60 articles and about a dozen books. Those books that he's authored or co-authored include... Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ, Faith Has Its Reasons, Integrative Approaches to Defending Christian Faith, 20 Compelling Evidences that God Exists, Orthodoxy and Heresy, A Biblical Guide to Doctrinal Discernment, and Why You Should Believe in the Trinity, An Answer to Jehovah's Witnesses. And I consider him a friend to the podcast. I interviewed him for a couple of good episodes, and I'll put the link for those on the blog post for this episode. He comes around occasionally to the Trinity's Podcast Facebook group and interacts with people who listen to the podcast there, whether they're Trinitarian or Unitarian. Before we get started, I would like to ask you to join me in praying for Dr. Bowman and his family. There are a couple of very stressful things that have been going on. He's been undergoing a transition in his work, and that's always a very big deal in a person's life. And he has an adult daughter who has some uh, severe health challenges, and her health has taken a turn for the worse recently, and this just involves a ton of work and stress for his family. So pray that God would heal her, that God would bless them financially and guide them in decisions they have to make. And Just pray that he would be with them and encourage them through these difficult trials. So I appreciated that Dr. Bowman engaged with my presentation, and uh, he does make a couple of good points. On the other hand, I'm going to push back on a couple of points. The article doesn't get off to the best start. He introduces me in this way. Tuggy is a philosopher who blogs on the subject of the Trinity. Well, technically that's true, but but that's a little bit misleading. I'm not just this philosopher who's taken a bizarre interest in the Trinity. I've published peer-reviewed papers in all the top philosophy, religion, and philosophical theology or analytic theology journals 
on this exact subject. And this is not to mention Trinity Entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy or my, I think, helpful little book called What is the Trinity? So no, I'm not just a philosopher blogging on the Trinity. I'm an expert talking in my field. So anyway, that's the first time I've ever fussed about how I've been introduced. Usually I don't care. But I have been noticing that apologists love to emphasize that I'm a philosopher because it suggests to some people that, hey, this guy's just interested in speculation and theorizing. Actually, I've always been concerned principally with the Bible. I have written about different ways to parse out Trinity theories, to ways that smart Christians have tried to make sense of them. I've written about the metaphysics and epistemology and logic of it all, but really concerned with the Bible is my main thing. I'm also concerned with what you could call pastoral issues, just the ways that these confusions are bad for the body of Christ and bad for individual believers' spiritual lives. So, but that's just all fussing. Dr. Bowman continues, In this post, I will respond to his claim that my argument for the Trinity is unsound. In a second post, I will respond to his claim that my argument is incoherent. About that last part, that's not exactly what I said. It's interesting that's what he heard me say. So he jumps into discussing the argument that comes at the end of his long article called The Biblical Basis of the Doctrine of the Trinity. And in that, he ends with a simple deductive argument. He says, All the elements of the doctrine are taught in Scripture. Second premise, the New Testament presents a consistent triad of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is God, Christ, and Spirit. Therefore, the Bible does teach the Trinity. And the first point I made about that argument was that he doesn't need premise two. Premise two is doing nothing in the argument. It's clear that he's putting together a deductive argument, and it's also clear that the conclusion is implied by the one premise, premise one. So, If it's true that all the elements of the doctrine are taught in Scripture, well, then it's true that the Bible does teach the Trinity. This is the strongest possible connection between premises and conclusion. It's implication. It's a valid argument in the sense that if all one of the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. And so that second premise, that the New Testament presents a consistent triad of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is perfectly idle. It does absolutely nothing to support the conclusion in conjunction with one. The two premises are unrelated to each other. The reason you put premises in a deductive argument is because taken together, those premises imply the conclusion. This is what he says in response. Tuggy asserts that I don't need the second premise regarding the consistent triad of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Okay, consistent triad. He doesn't mean a consistent triad in the sense of three claims that could all be true. He doesn't mean that. He just means that this this grouping of three, Father, Son, and Spirit, he says are consistently found in the New Testament. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's commonly found in the New Testament. It's fairly common for the New Testament authors to mention the three of them together. But as Dr. Bowman notes in his own article on this topic, sometimes you have only the Father and the Son, and sometimes you have the Father and Son and Spirit, but then other things are thrown in with them. 
So it's not always those three, but it's often those three. He continues, he speculates that I threw in that second premise because I think only Trinitarianism can explain this premise and that Unitarianism can't. Tuggy guessed incorrectly here, although I certainly think Trinitarianism explains this information better than Unitarianism. Okay. The middle premise, again, premise two in my analysis, is needed not because my argument would not work without it, but because it anticipates and refutes a possible objection. Specifically, the point about the consistent triadic teaching of the New Testament shows that the doctrine of the Trinity is not cobbling together unrelated elements of biblical teaching. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are coordinated as divine persons in numerous passages throughout the New Testament in such a way as to confirm that the finding that the New Testament teaches the deity of each person, established in earlier parts of my outline, is not an accident or a misreading. These three persons, and only these three, are presented to us in the New Testament as true deity. Now, I thought I was making a friendly point in pointing out that he didn't need premise two in that argument. He's saying, oh, yes, I do. I need it because I want to anticipate a possible objection. Look, if logically speaking, the premise is idle, if it's not doing anything in conjunction with premise one, then it just doesn't belong in the argument. It's not a Tuggy's opinion point, it's just a point about deductive arguments generally. Here's another friendly point, whether or not Dr. Bowman wants to receive the advice. Really, he, I think, is offering a different line of argument for the same conclusion. Uh, or maybe it's just a reply to an objection, or maybe it's both, I'm not sure. But this point that, hey, there's this consistent triad mentioned in the New Testament... That seems like it could be relevant to whether or not the Bible teaches the Trinity, but it doesn't have anything to do with the premise here that all the elements of the doctrine are taught in Scripture. It doesn't add any extra help to that premise to get us the conclusion that therefore the Bible does teach the Trinity. Now, when he says that in the New Testament, those three are coordinated as divine persons, I mean, what does that mean? No author says, hey, guess what, guys? There are three divine persons, and here they are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This idea of divine persons and one God isn't part of their conceptual machinery. I mean, this is an interpretation. This isn't some fact about the text. He's suggesting here, hey, the way they're coordinated, they can only be co-equally divine persons. Well... I'm not sure why anybody should accept that. It is a conclusion that some people jump to after reading that passage in the Great Commission, but I don't think Dr. Bowman's trying to draw that much conclusion out of that one passage. But it's not very clear to me just what his argument is here. As he knows, there are other explanations why the three of them could be mentioned together commonly. And the real issue here is what's the best explanation of this fact if the best explanation is a Trinitarian one, then that would be one point in their camp. If the best explanation of the groupings of those three commonly together is Unitarian, then it's going to support a Unitarian understanding of the New Testament. When he says that these persons are presented to the New, in the New Testament to us as true deity, I don't know what he means. And this could mean several things, as I've written about in many places. So, But this will come up again, so I'm going to press on for now. He continues, Tuggy concedes that my argument is logically valid, 
minus what he sees as an extraneous premise, but questions whether the argument is sound. His main objection is not that I failed to establish the six elements of the doctrine I stated were essential, but that those elements do not mention a tripersonal God, or that the three persons have the same usia, essence, nature, or the concepts of eternal generation and eternal procession. For example, he argues that it is a problem that there is no word for the, quote, tripersonal God, end quote, in the Bible. Not sure why he put those quotes there. And that in order to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, I needed to justify the use of such a term. Well, no, my point was not really that he needed to justify the use of such a term. My point was that the concept of a tripersonal God isn't in there. And if you're going to show that the Bible's Trinitarian, you will have to show that the concept in some sense is in there, implicitly, because there's no term uh, with that meaning. It's not about justifying word use, it's about appropriately interpreting these first century documents. He continues, In effect, Tuggy is here dictating that the essential elements of the doctrine include more information than the six elements I identified. His argument here fails to engage the basis on which I maintain that these six elements exhaust the category of essential elements of the doctrine. From the six propositions, the doctrine of the Trinity in some form follows. That is, if all six propositions are true, then the doctrine of the Trinity is necessarily true. If any one of the six propositions is false, then the doctrine of the Trinity is necessarily false. Therefore, each of the six propositions is essential, and only these propositions are essential as elements of the doctrine of the Trinity. I explain this briefly in the introduction to the article series. Mormons cannot affirm one divine being. Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians cannot affirm that the Son is God. Monarchians cannot affirm that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not each other. Trinitarians, and only Trinitarians, can affirm all six propositions. Therefore, these six affirmations are sufficient to define Trinitarianism, that is, to distinguish it from the other positions. When the Trinity's podcast returns, are those claims enough? Now, this part is, in a way, kind of the heart of his defense, and I'll be honest, it's frustrating. For one thing, it's not Tuggy dictating terms. What Tuggy did for the purpose of this presentation was picked the famous Westminster Confession of Faith from 1646. I did this because I knew it was a popular Reformed confession, and it was drawn up by people in the Church of England, but it's been an official standard in the Church of Scotland and many Presbyterian churches. And I could have picked other ones, but this is the one I picked for this presentation. And as I showed in the presentation, in explaining the doctrine of the Trinity, it mentions all those things that he's complaining about. It mentions a tripersonal God. It mentions eternal generation and eternal procession. And it mentions uh, the shared divine uh, essence or nature or Godhead. 
So look, it's, it's no good to say, well, the dastardly Tuggy is dictating terms here when Tuggy is using a very famous Protestant Trinitarian confession. Dr. Bowman's problem is with the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, this is against, you know, the kind of script that Trinitarian apologists are supposed to follow. You know, it's, it's got to be outsiders. It's got to be cultists. It's got to be rationalists. It's got to be skeptics, whatever those are supposed to be. It's got to be some kind of non-Christians who are, you know, making trouble and saying, hey, this Trinity doctrine doesn't make sense. Well, I'm not any of those things, but I'm not a member of the Trinity Club. It's going to feel better. It's going to seem like the right thing to do to push back against me and say, hey, you can't dictate terms here, pal. Who are you to say what's essential to the doctrine? When in fact, his problem is with Presbyterians. And I was curious about Dr. Bowman's own commitments here. I asked him privately after I read this response, you know, what's your denomination, if you don't mind me asking? Are you Southern Baptist or something? Or he goes to a church which is a type of Reformed Baptist. And if you look at that church's creeds as posted online, and I'll put a link for this on the blog post for this episode, it doesn't mention eternal generation and eternal procession. So this is a difference, I take it, between at least many, maybe most, Calvinist Baptists and the Presbyterian Calvinists. Okay, that's interesting. So it's Trinitarian against Trinitarian. Now, am I failing to engage his claim that those exhaust the essential elements? No, actually, I did engage it. And one thing Dr. Bowman did was he focused on the part of my presentation which was discussing his piece. The thing was, things I said in other parts of the presentation, which were highly relevant to his piece, I didn't repeat those things when I went on to talk about his piece. So in its main argument, his piece is really similar to a piece by B.B. Warfield, published in 1916, as are many other apologetics pieces trying to show that the Trinity is biblical. Warfield says, hey, there are just three claims. Really, there are seven claims. And he says that's all there is to the Trinity. And if you can show that the Bible teaches those claims, you've shown that it teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. And those are basically the same as Bowman's claims. There's one God, Father's God, the Son's God, the Spirit's God. That's four claims. Those three are different from each other. That's three more claims right there. Right, so you get seven claims. doesn't mention anything about homoousion or eternal generation or procession. And you're supposed to infer that this has to do with the idea of a tripersonal God, although it's not clear quite how that fits into it. And so... Here's why I didn't fail to engage his reasoning at all. In fact, I engaged it, but I engaged it when talking about Warfield. Again, Warfield's got the same seven points, okay? Now, my complaint about Warfield's argument, it's similar to my complaint about Bowman's argument. The basic point is the argument does not show enough for it to show that the Bible is Trinitarian in its theology. So, switching back to Warfield's seven claims which he compacts into three premises. He says there's only one God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are each God. Third premise, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are different persons. And the conclusion is, therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity is true. And so I explained in my presentation why the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. 
And the way you can see it is it's not hard to see how a modalist or a subordinationist who's really a Unitarian could accept all three premises and yet deny the conclusion. Right, so if you say there's one God, the modalist will say, right, there's only one God. If you say the Father and Son and the Spirit is each God, right, yep, it's just three ways of living in the one God, or three personalities, or three somethings, something less than beings in God. And you say the Father and Son and Spirit are each a distinct person, that's exactly right. The modalist will agree with that, they'll say, yep, they're distinct persons in the sense of personae. Right, And the same person could read Bowman's propositions and come to the same conclusion. The only difference between Bowman's collection of claims, really, and Warfield's is that he throws in that the three persons relate to one another personally. The modalist might have a little problem with that, but they could just say, yourself as father might give yourself advice as teacher, and so you, the father, might advise you as teacher. Or you as friend might advise yourself as father. Okay, so there you have, quote, personal relations between the personae of the Trinity. And the subordinationists wouldn't have that problem because they have three beings in their scheme. Right, so there's, there's one God. The subordinationists will say, right, that's the Father. Father, Son, the Spirit is each God. That's right, each one is divine. Of course, the subordinationist thinks that the one true God is the Father. The other two are lesser divine beings. Yeah, but they're each divine in a broad sense of divine, right? If you say, well, yeah, they're supposed to be fully divine, though. It doesn't say that. Where's that in the argument? It's not there. Okay, the Father, Son, Spirit, each is a distinct person. Right. They have three beings. Each one is a personal being. Right, so it's no good just to say, well, I've exhausted all the possibilities because I've talked about Mormons, JWs, Unitarians, and Monarchians. We need to use more imagination. There's just not enough content there to guarantee belief in a trinity, a trinity of three fully and equally divine persons within the one God. You just don't have that. There's not enough content there, and that's demonstrated by the fact that a modalist or a subordinationist could accept all those claims and yet deny the conclusion. In Warfield's argument, this shows that the argument is invalid because those were his premises. Bowman's premise is that all the elements of the doctrine are in the Bible. I think that premise is false, so the argument's valid but unsound in that case. But the complaint, in a sense, is the same. The complaint is there's not enough content in their formulations to actually result in a Trinity doctrine. They've dumbed it down, they've simplified it, so that they would be able to show that it's in the Bible. Now, of course, when I gave the presentation, I knew that some Trinitarians did not accept generation and procession, and the reason is it's just utterly hopeless to try to derive those from the Bible. Bowman says about those, It is true that I did not include such concepts as eternal generation and eternal procession, these concepts are explanatory devices advanced in mainstream Trinitarianism to explain, at least somehow, how the Son and the Holy Spirit are differentiated from the Father in eternity. Yeah, that's true. I agree with that. However, he continues, one need not affirm these concepts in order to be Trinitarian. For example, one might maintain that the second person is eternally the Logos, 
who is truly God, and that the title Son applies to him by virtue of the Incarnation, as a messianic title, for example. Some people consider this view heterodox, but the view is still a form of Trinitarianism. It is clearly not a form of Unitarianism, Monarchianism, or other non-Trinitarian theology. Now, I agree that so long as there's a concept of a triune God in that scheme, that should be considered a kind of Trinitarianism. One thing that's interesting about this Trinitarianism without eternal generation and eternal procession As far as I know, this is really a modern phenomenon that really only goes back to around the middle of the 1800s. I think before that time, you just wouldn't find anybody on the face of the earth who was a Trinitarian, and yet who said, yeah, eternal generation and procession, that doesn't make sense, and that's not really in the Bible anyway. So this is a newfangled sort of, you could call it Trinity light, but it is a real division within the Trinitarian camp, just as he says. He says, likewise, the expression homoousian toi patri, of the same essence as the Father, found in the Nicene Creed, is a way of expressing the deity of the Son that is very significant in the history of Trinitarian theology, but is not itself an essential element of the doctrine of the Trinity per se. It was important in the context of the Creed as a way of distinguishing the mainstream Christian view from Arianism, which viewed the Son as a separate and subordinate deity. Well... I mean, for most of Christian history to say that the homoousian claim was optional would have kind of been, I mean, it just simply wouldn't have been tolerated, right? That, that's been the rallying cry for Catholic and Orthodox and for many Protestant theologians. In modern times, we've convinced ourselves, many of us, that, hey, we can just restate this in language that maybe is simpler or somehow more relevant to our situation and less ancient as if this idea of uh, you know sharing the divine nature or sharing an essence has somehow gone out of date. But, I mean, I think I just disagree about this. You don't have to use that language in Greek, homoousion, but you do have to think that the Father and Son and Spirit are fully divine and divine to the same degree. He continues, Interestingly, the Nicene Creed, and it becomes clear below he means the Creed of 325, does not do what Tuggy claims is surprising that the Bible does not do if the Trinity is true. It does not use a special term for the three persons, such as Trinity, or tripersonal God, or triune God. Well, sure, Dr. Bowman, but the Nicene Creed of 325 is not a Trinitarian creed. It was about a Christological dispute. It doesn't give a similar doctrine about the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mention a tripersonal God. It doesn't presuppose anything about a tripersonal God because, unless you count the Monarchians, and we shouldn't, nobody was talking about a tripersonal God in 325. That just wasn't on anybody's radar back then. So contrary to popular myth, uh, the Nicene Creed isn't the genesis of Trinity theories. It's solidly before there were any Trinity theories, any theories of a triune God. He says, Tuggy faults my argument for failing to include the use of such a term as one of the essentials of the doctrine of the Trinity, yet the Nicene Creed also fails to include the use of such a term. Right, but it's not Trinitarian. The longer form of the Nicene Creed, produced by the First Council of Constantinople in 381, also neglected to use any such terminology. 
By Tuggy's own reasoning, then, the Nicene Creed, in both of its forms, does not constitute an adequate statement of the doctrine of the Trinity, nor does the Creed speak of the Holy Spirit's eternal procession from the Father. It says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, but does not specify that this procession is an eternal relation. So, look, I agree that neither of those creeds taken on its own is an adequate statement of the doctrine of the Trinity, because a person could well look at either one of those creeds and just simply not see any triune God there. If you don't have a triune God, it's not a Trinitarian theology that we're talking about. Now, the big difference between the two creeds is what went on in between them. And I have argued in my book, What is the Trinity?, that in the year 381, some of the main players involved in the council had extended the homoousion claim to the Holy Spirit. And even since the time of Origen, there had been a belief uh, by some mainstream Christians that the Father eternally gave rise to, eternally caused the Son and the Spirit. Whether the Spirit was direct or indirect is another question. So the 381 creed is implicitly Trinitarian. It was understood at the time to be Trinitarian, although in its language it's not really adequately Trinitarian, mainly because it never uses a term like God or the Trinity to refer to a tripersonal God. So yeah, I think eternal generation and procession were presupposed at the time, so it's not a big deficiency if it doesn't say eternal procession, but just says proceeds. I think that was kind of a technical term by then. And look at what the tradition did. It did not stop making Trinitarian creeds after 381, and the creeds become more explicitly Trinitarian. In fact, Many, many passages in Augustine, who's just a little bit later in the 380s, 390s, and on, many passages in Augustine are way more explicitly Trinitarian than the 381 Creed. Sorry about the mower next door. Dr. Bowman concludes, Tuggy's objection that my argument for the doctrine of the Trinity is missing essential elements of the doctrine thus misses the mark. It takes important expressions used in Trinitarian theology to explicate or articulate the doctrine and mistakenly claims that these expressions in and of themselves are essential elements or propositional claims of the doctrine. So as to this first part, his point is well taken that not all Trinitarians believe in generation and procession. That is a modern development in Trinitarian theology can't we get by without those because we can just see that they're not supportable by the Bible? And there's also a, I think, justified concern that, hey, don't generation and procession make the Son and the Spirit dependent beings, and so they're not independent beings like a fully divine being would have to be? So that's another uh, more theological or metaphysical concern that has come into play in modern times. So he's right about that. The thing is, to make my point that there's not enough content in his premises to get his conclusion, it only requires that there's one element missing, right? So for the sake of argument, I can just grant that, okay, never mind about eternal generation and procession, but we do need a claim to sharing the divine essence or being homoousion or being fully and equally divine, something like that. And, okay, you don't have that in the piece, and that's why a subordinationist Unitarian can, while not being Trinitarian, accept all the premises. 
those premises just don't have enough content in them. They don't have enough specificity in them to rule out the subordinationist Unitarian, nor do they clearly rule out the modalist, as I explained. And the point about uh, a term for a tripersonal God, it's not that you have to have a term like that. It's that there has to be the concept of a tripersonal God in the premises somewhere or implied by them, and it ain't there. He has A, B, and C for premises. A is all the elements of the doctrine are taught in Scripture. Then he has five premises, though it's more claims than that. But anyway, one says one God is the one divine being, right? No mention of a tripersonal God there. Two, three, and four, Father's God, Son's God, Spirit's God, right? No mention of a tripersonal God there. Father, Son, Spirit are three persons. They're not each other, nor are they impersonal. They relate to one another personally. No mention of a triune God there. Just for good measure, let's throw in the extra claim. That's doing nothing in the argument. The New Testament presents a consistent triad of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's interesting. Where's the concept of a triune God? It's not there. Okay, when he says the Bible teaches the Trinity... Look, you can declare victory just by defining Trinity to mean the claims just mentioned. Okay, but we can't do that. Uh, We have to define Trinity and Trinitarian in a way that actually fits the realities on the ground, actually fits what Trinitarian theologians are saying. In part two, Dr. Bowman says incorrectly that I said that his statement of the doctrine is incoherent. That's not exactly what I said. What I said was that the statements he provided are ambiguous. And on one interpretation or another interpretation, they turn out to be mutually inconsistent claims. They turn out to be an incoherent set of claims. It's interesting that he read this as saying that his doctrine is incoherent. If I understand him, he's seizing one of the two horns that I presented. He's seizing one of the interpretations and saying, yes, that's mine. Okay, but I didn't accuse him of providing an incoherency. I, I said that the premises are so vague that here's one incoherent reading and here's another incoherent reading. Look, is there a coherent reading? Because we can't go around foisting inconsistency on the Bible. Well, he disagrees with that, as we'll see, but... Okay, so he says, his objection is that my statement of the doctrine is incoherent. No, not really. That's not what I meant, but let's keep going. Dr. Bowman says, as he has been doing with Trinitarian theology in general for many years, Tuggy finds fault with my argument by complaining about the logical difficulty of affirming that each person is God, in quotation marks, and yet that the persons are distinct from one another. Things that are identical to the same thing are identical to one another. With this analytical knife, Tuggy thinks he can cut any presentation or defense of Trinitarian belief to ribbons without so much as opening a Bible. (sighs) Wow. I find that incredibly depressing. And here's why. If you read my entry called Trinity in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy you will see several competing Trinity theories by very accomplished Christian philosophers, including Brian Leftow, Peter Van Inwagen, Richard Swinburne, William Hasker, and others. And none of those theories runs afoul 
of the principle that he says that things are that are identical to the same thing are identical to one another trinity theories as built by analytic philosophers that is by analytic theologians do not have this problem generally speaking because philosophers are trained in logic and we know that you can't have just logically demonstrable incoherence in a theory and yet that theory be true incoherent claims can't all be true so it's a huge mistake to think that any presentation or defense of trinitarian belief is going to require violating that self-evident truth it's a huge mistake and it shows unwillingness to engage in serious theorizing on this topic. When the Trinity's podcast returns, given his latest responses, I take a stab at interpreting what Dr. Bowman's Trinity theory amounts to. Dr. Bowman continues, his point is that my argument is incoherent because, as he sees it, the affirmations that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God logically contradict the affirmation that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not each other. To this objection, I have three responses. Now, before I go on to these three responses, let me say what I think is happening here and I'm kind of surprised by this, and I don't think this will work out well for his position. If I understand him, and this is based partly on his response that follows, if I understand him, he's saying that when he says the Father is God, he means the Father just is God, like those are numerically one. In the same way that Abram is Abraham, for instance, or that you are yourself. When he says the Son is God, he's saying the Son just is God, that those are identical. And then when he says the Holy Spirit's God, he's saying the Holy Spirit just is God, right, and vice versa. So in in terms of words, he's saying that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and God, that those four terms are co-referring. If that's what he's saying, then when he adds that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons i.e. they are not each other, nor are they impersonal. They relate to one another personally. When he says they're three persons, that requires that they're three beings. I mean, if we're really just talking about one being here, whether we say Father, Son, Spirit, or God, if we're really just talking about one and the same eternal being, then it, or rather he, can't be three different persons. That's just nonsense. Being three persons requires being three beings, if you really mean selves, like intelligent beings, beings with a first-person point of view. Now, if you mean persons in the sense of personae, then yeah, okay, they can be uh, three different personae. Each will just be a persona of the one God. This is what logicians and metaphysicians call the indiscernibility of identicals, if we're really talking about one and the same being, there can't be any simultaneous differences. Uh, One and the same being can't be and also not be the same way at the same time. 
So if this one's the father and this one's the son, then there's a difference between them in that one's the father and one's the son. Okay, then we're not talking about just the same being, the same eternal being, right? We have to be talking about two different beings because they differ from each other. Right? We know they differ from each other. The son was crucified, the father was not. The father sent his son, the son did not send his son. The father and son together send the spirit, the spirit did not send the spirit. So it seems that when he says the Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God, and yet they're three different persons, yeah, I think those are demonstrably an incoherent set of claims. I'll give a full argument for this in the blog post for this episode. I'll lay out a valid argument and premises, and so if Dr. Bowman or anyone else wants to void the conclusion, then they can just deny one or more of the premises. That's how valid arguments work. Okay, so it sounds to me like he's offering what is just a manifestly incoherent set of claims. The three of them have to be different from each other because they're three different persons, and yet the three of them are all identical to God, right? So God is and isn't the Father. God is and isn't the Son. God is and isn't the Spirit. It's just nonsense. This is how he responds. First, If there is a logical difficulty here, if, it arises from the teachings of the Bible, since we find all these elements of the doctrine of the Trinity taught in Scripture. Well, if that's what you're saying, then you're saying that Scripture is demonstrably incoherent. And on the face of it, that seems like a pretty bad problem for your scriptural interpretation. So I think it's kind of begging the question here. Right. If, if we're agreed that what the scriptures teach on this topic is true, I mean, I guess he's just ignoring that they really are incoherent. Like, he's not willing to see it. Okay, again, I'll put the argument on the blog post for this episode so I can advance the conversation. He continues, Second, there are other apparent instances of logical difficulties or apparent contradictions in other aspects of biblical doctrine that most professing Christians, including very many Unitarians, accept without reservation. For example, many, if not most, biblical Unitarians, the biblically conservative movement that sometimes describes itself as such, accept both the omniscience of God and the freedom of God. That is, they believe both that God knows all things and that he acts freely, choosing freely what he will do. Present this claim to a group of skeptics and watch them get out their analytical knives. If God knows what he will do, they will argue, then he cannot do otherwise. He cannot do anything other than what he knows he will do. But if he cannot do otherwise, then he is not free in doing it. Is this a genuine logical contradiction? It looks like one. Can I resolve this apparent contradiction? Perhaps the argument makes some assumptions about what it means to act freely that do not apply to the transcendent eternal creator. There is a lot of potential ambiguity in the words can and cannot, as well as the word free. Here's the thing. Even if I am unsure exactly how to resolve the apparent logical difficulty, I am fully warranted in believing both that God knows all things and that God freely chooses what he does. Moreover, if my proposed explanation for how God can know all things and make free choices is shown to have some difficulties, this does not mean that those two theological concepts are not both true. It would just mean that I don't fully understand how God can be what he is. Not only would this outcome not bother me, it's what I would expect to be the case. I think at the end he's saying there that 
just because God is so great, he would expect there to be apparent incoherence in our discourse about God. If you want to know what I think is wrong with that, check out my paper called On Positive Mysterianism. But I digress. I'm not real happy with this example. I actually think omniscience and human freedom and divine freedom are incompatible. I spent about a decade studying it, which resulted in just one paper, Three Roads to Open Theism, published in Faith and Philosophy. Without opening this whole gigantic can of worms, I would just point out that Dr. Bowman here has kept it hazy. If there is a contradiction between believing in omniscience and freedom, he hasn't really brought it out sharply. And because he hasn't done that, then it seems reasonable to say, hey, maybe there's just something going on here we don't understand. When somebody actually puts it into an understandable and valid argument, then it really sharpens the conversation and it, it forces you to make choices. And of course, it's not skeptics mainly that raise this problem. It's mainly open theists, Christians like William Hasker and other people. They have formulated rigorous arguments to try to show how uh, human freedom and divine omniscience as traditionally understood, how those two things are incompatible with one another. So my point about this is, yeah, as long as we leave it hazy, like we're just worried, hey, do these two things really go together? Then we can convince ourselves that, well, they must go together because we have such strong grounds for believing in both. There must be some way this can be worked out. Okay, but I don't think this helps with the case at hand. Again, I'll advance the argument in written form on the blog post for this episode of the podcast, and we'll maybe continue the discussion from there. I think we can make the contradiction harder to ignore. Dr. Bowman continues, Third, in my opinion, the apparent logical difficulty that Tuggy finds in the doctrine of the Trinity arises because he is applying analytical concepts of identity to the transcendent, infinite God. The premise of his critique, as I quoted earlier, is this, Things that are identical to the same thing are identical to one another. This premise works fine with finite, discrete objects or things that cannot be identical to the same thing, i.e. the same finite object, without being identical to each other. A finite object's identity is defined by its boundaries, its limitations, its separateness from other finite things in the matrix of the created world. I am a separate being from you because we occupy different bodies began our existence separately, have had different locations and movements as well as different experiences, thoughts, and feelings throughout our lives, have different abilities, opinions, and interests, and so on. What if the three persons of the Trinity coexist eternally, are incorporeal and omnipresent, are omniscient, are omnipotent, and are absolutely perfect in wisdom and goodness? Then each knows every thought of the other two, each is present at all times with the other two, not just by proximity, but interiorly. Each has all of the same abilities as the other two, and each is certainly in agreement with the other two regarding all things. If three persons share this eternal, incorporeal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent nature, then in some way that defies easy analysis for us, it would appear that they are ontologically one, even though they are also relationally or personally distinct from one another. The rule that things identical to the same thing are identical to one another does not seem to apply to three divine persons of this nature. Again, as with the issue of divine omniscience and volition, 
I do not need to be able to explain perfectly how God can be one God and three persons in order to be reasonably warranted in believing both are true. If I have reasons to believe that the Bible is a reliable source of doctrinal truth about God, and I do, then I am warranted in believing a state of affairs that I cannot fully analyze rationally if the Bible teaches it. That having been said, in my opinion, we can offer at least some reasonable explanation of why Tuggy's rational objection to Trinitarianism falls short of being the decisive disproof he claims. Maybe you can hear it now. The rain has busted out fully, and my umbrella is not really holding up anymore. The water's actually coming through the umbrella, thus getting onto my recorder, papers, etc. So I will have to retreat from the rain and finish this discussion probably tomorrow. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I evaluate Dr. Bowman's philosophical response that you just heard. Okay, so what to make of these last two paragraphs of the second part of his response? What's going on is he's philosophizing here. Before he was talking epistemology, he was saying, even if I can't explain away an apparent contradiction, still I could be justified in believing an apparent contradiction. My response was, yeah, sure, as long as you leave things hazy and you don't actually sharpen it up into an argument. And then you have to make choices once that happens. It doesn't seem rational anymore just to stand your ground in the face of an evident contradiction. In this part that I just read, he's philosophizing about identity. And his idea is that uh, Tuggy must be presupposing some controversial thesis about identity. And I don't have to accept that controversial thesis. It's just because of that controversial thesis that he thinks the Trinity is incoherent. Again, there is no the Trinity. There are lots of Trinity theories. Lots of them simply don't have this type of problem at all. But what he argues here is that the subject matter means that you can't make certain inferences. Again, he says, in my opinion, the apparent logical difficulty that Tuggy finds in the doctrine of the Trinity arises because he is applying analytical concepts of identity to the transcendent infinite God. First of all, it's not really a special concept as come up with by analytic philosophers of recent times. It's really a core part of our conceptual apparatus. Everybody has a concept of identity, this particular concept of numerical identity that we're talking about. It is philosophers who have explored logic and how logic concerns this identity concept, but we didn't make up the concept the concept is not really a part of any substantial theory. Furthermore, Dr. Bowman is also applying this concept of identity to the transcendent infinite God when he identifies each of the persons with God. As I understand him, I explained this a little while ago, 
I understand that he's saying that the Father just is God, that the Father and God are numerically the same. And then he's saying the same thing about the Son and God and about the Holy Spirit and God. So he's applying the same concept to God. But look, it just can be applied to God. Whatever there is has to be identical to itself in this sense. If we can refer to something and then we go and refer to another thing, we can just ask ourselves, did we refer to the same thing twice or did we refer to two different things, either by thought or by speech? And God just is within the domain of this. It doesn't make any sense to say that God is somehow exempt from this concept or even from this type of reasoning. So he says a finite object's identity is defined by its boundaries, its limitations. I think he's now philosophizing about the individual essence of a finite thing, maybe including but not limited to material things. That's not really relevant. He says, I'm a separate being from you because we occupy different bodies, began our existence separately, have had different locations and movements, etc., etc. Right, but according to this concept of numerical sameness that we're talking about, it forces indiscernibility. That's just tied up with the concept itself. So any kind of simultaneous difference proves discernibility. It proves non-identity. Why am I one person and you're another person? Well, what makes us two different people is sort of one metaphysical question, but never mind what makes us two, what the principle of individuation is for people is one way to put it. Whatever it is that makes us two, metaphysically speaking, we know that we have to be two so long as we know that you and I have ever differed in any way. Because a thing can't be and not be the same way at the same time. We're off in the weeds of metaphysical theorizing here about finite versus infinite objects. And by the way, the concept of identity just does apply to infinite objects. If you refer to the set of even real numbers, have you referred to the same thing as when you refer to the set of all real odd numbers? No, they're obviously different, okay? They're infinite things, whether they're concepts or objects or ideas in God's mind, never mind that. But anyway, they're infinite, right? Not finite, but they're two different ones. And so we're using the same kind of reasoning. There is a difference between these two sets, therefore they're not the same set. So the way he's interpreting scripture runs him up really quickly against an incoherence. He's identifying two different things with the same thing. And so in response, instead of going back to the drawing board and looking for a consistent interpretation of Scripture, or adjusting his Trinity theory so that it doesn't immediately just smack headfirst into this unresolvable problem, he's theorizing. He's speculating in a metaphysical vein. So when he tells you that his position on the Trinity is purely just a result of reading the Bible, no, it's not. It's the result of that and Protestant traditions of a certain sort, and a certain kind of philosophizing. It's not good philosophizing. Then he goes on to talk about the three persons of the Trinity and say, okay, but these aren't like finite objects. Well, sure, they wouldn't be. And he just dumps out a whole bunch of things onto the table. They're incorporeal, they're omnipresent, they're omniscient, they're omnipotent, they're perfect in wisdom and goodness. Sure, if each one's fully divine. Each knows every thought of the other two, right? 
essentially omniscient. Each is present at all times with the other two, right? Eternal and omnipresent. Not just proximately, but interiorly. Hmm, okay, maybe. Each has all of the same abilities as the other two, right? They're all essentially omnipotent. Each is in agreement with the other two beings regarding all things. We could raise quibbles with that, but I'm not going to stop right now. Here's his payoff that he's driving towards. If three persons share this eternal, incorporeal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent nature, then in some way that defies easy analysis for us, it would appear that they are ontologically one, even though they are also relationally or personally distinct from one another. The rule that things identical to the same thing are identical to one another does not seem to apply to three divine persons of this nature. Well, yes, it does seem to apply to three divine persons of that nature. There's no problem whatsoever with it applying, nor has there been shown to be any problem. This is just special pleading. He just doesn't want it to apply. And so he says, well, look, these are really different than finite objects, so this doesn't apply, right? Right. No, it doesn't follow at all. I'm sorry. And look, the incoherence just, it doesn't even really need an argument to bring it out, right? He's told you that each of these three are God, but then he really thinks they're three, right? He's talked about three persons here. Each one of them knows is perfect in wisdom and goodness and so on. I mean, he thinks these are three numerically different beings. And he says they share the same nature, so it would appear they are ontologically one. By nature here, I think he means a property. And in philosophy, basically, there are two kinds of properties. There are universals and there are individual properties, a universal, just by definition, can be wholly present in many different instances of that kind. So, for instance, if human nature is a universal, then human nature is fully present in you, and it's also supposed to be fully present in me. So, if three people are fully human, no, they're not ontologically one in the sense that they're one being. They're three examples of the same kind of being, just insofar as they're all humans, right? Okay, so if the shared nature here, this idea of divinity, is a universal, no, it doesn't follow that they're ontologically one. It would follow that they're three gods, numerically three beings, each of which has divine nature, the divine essence. That just means that there are three gods. So no, it wouldn't make them ontologically one in the sense of being numerically one. It would make them extremely similar, which is what he's saying. But yeah, you can have extreme similarity, but if there's just one difference, they can't be numerically the same. And he's committed to there being differences between these three, as any Christian is, at least in the case of the Father and the Son. Okay, the other concept of a property, such as an essence, uh, defining essential properties, would be an individual property. And this is just defined as being unshareable in principle. So then I would have my instance of human nature and you'd have your instance of human nature. And the idea of two different things sharing one instance of human nature is just uh, a contradiction. They're just defined as being unshareable in principle. So then you can't go on to say, well, yeah, what if these properties were shared? So if the three persons share a single individual essence then, well, they can't really be three beings. They just have to be personae or something like that. If you have an essence that in principle can't be shared by distinct beings, then if you have two or three, so to speak, that are sharing it, well, those two or three really just turn out to be the same one. 
but then there can't be any differences between the three. Uh, it's all really just one being with three aspects or something like that. It's not consistent with his pretty clear statement that he thinks these three are selves that enjoy interpersonal relations with one another, right? So then they just can't be the same one self in three different aspects or three different personalities or something like that. Anyway, none of this shows that the concept of numerical identity can't be applied to the Trinity or to the persons of the Trinity or to infinite beings or to incorporeal beings or anything like that. You just can apply this concept. He applies this concept to the persons of the Trinity and to the Trinity, right? So if there is a Trinity, it's identical to itself. If the Father and Son are different, they're not identical to one another. They must be two. That's applying this concept to the alleged transcendent deity and three persons of Trinitarian theories. This part at the end about not being able to explain perfectly how God can be one God and three persons in order to reasonably believe it. Look, explaining how, I think, is a red herring here. It's just a distraction. Never mind what the explanation is for God being a trinity. Just what is this theory that we're claiming fits the text? Never mind what the explanation of this alleged fact is. What is the alleged fact and does it actually fit the text? And I say that no, it doesn't. Because as I've argued in many places, the Bible does identify God and the Father, but it never identifies God and the Son of God. It never identifies the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit, well, that's another conversation. So to sum up, as far as his own article is concerned, what he doesn't show is that there's any concept of a triune God in the Bible. He doesn't show that it's explicit there. Of course it's not. But most importantly, he doesn't show that the concept is implicit there. And because of this, he does not show that any Trinity doctrine is implicit in Scripture. To be a Trinity doctrine, it has to have a God which is in some sense tripersonal, and these persons have to be equally and fully divine. Dr. Bowman is right that in these latter days, you can be considered a Trinitarian, even if you don't agree with the traditional speculations about eternal generation and eternal procession. Now, a lot of Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and other Protestants would find that super outrageous. How could you accept Trinitarian tradition generally and reject this key, they think, central portion of it? But that's, you know, something for the Trinitarians to fight about. I think Dr. Bowman and I agree that eternal generation and procession just are not clearly taught in Scripture. What's important to see, I think, is that Dr. Bowman's thoughts on the Trinity are not just simply derived from the Bible. They're derived from Protestant tradition, in particular a modern strain of Trinitarian Protestant tradition, and he very quickly has to defend his view as seemingly incoherent, but that's okay, and the way he defends it is with metaphysical speculation. It's not at all convincing, but this is really the choice we have to make. We all have to philosophize a little bit, if that just means careful reasoning and trying to figure out what is consistent with what. The question is, are we going to do it well, or are we going to do it badly? Dr. Bowman's own version of the Trinity Doctrine is really demonstrably incoherent. Again, the argument's in the blog post, so I won't go through it right here. But you can't jump from that 
to just the Trinity's incoherent, as if Dr. Bowman just thought what everybody thinks about the Trinity. There is no one Trinity theory. It's a family of theories. In fact, you can group them into different sections. There's the three-selfers, the one-selfers, the Mysterians, or other people like to talk about the Latin theories versus the Eastern theories or Latin versus social theories. Okay, sure, there's different ways to sort them, but they are different theories. They make different truth claims. Most of these theories, if you take any pair of them, they can't both be true. They're logically contrary. But anyway, yeah, there are multiple theories at play here, and so we can't just pretend that the Trinity is something generally understood by Christians, which is pretty easy to understand, and then you can just immediately jump to defending it. You can't immediately jump to defend until you even ask, what is it? What does it even mean? Dr. Bowman's formulations, as I've explained, leave too many different interpretations on the table to count as expressing a creedly orthodox trinity theory. Now, in conclusion, let me say that I think I pretty fully understand his motivations here. They're conservative motivations. He's saying to himself, what's the chance here that the mainstream tradition has got this wrong. There's got to be a defensible, to some extent sensible, understandable, plausible theology here. How could God allow tradition to go that wrong? And he's being conservative by trying to defend it, even in the face of just self-evident truths. My position's actually more conservative than his. I'm admitting something that's pretty obvious when it's pointed out, although it's commonly denied. I'm admitting that there's a clash between post-biblical, small-c Catholic traditions and the theology of the Bible. The theology of the Bible doesn't have anything to do with a triune God, nothing to do with a tripersonal God. This is never mentioned, never assumed, never implied. And so the one who wants to be a disciple the one who wants to follow Jesus by following the message that he taught and the message that was taught by his hand-picked apostles and their associates, that person is going to have to choose apostolic tradition over later small-c Catholic traditions. My view is sticking to what's self-evident. It's sticking to things that everyone knows. It's not based on philosophical speculation of any kind nor is it based on any controversial claim about human knowledge or evidence or rationality. He immediately has to rush to controversial epistemology when he suggests that apparently incoherent claims should nonetheless still be believed. That's a controversial claim. In another context, we could talk about that for a long time. But for right now, I'm just pointing out it is a controversial claim. Usually incoherence, we think, is powerful evidence against the truth of all the claims together. Usually we think there's got to be a false claim in there if we're looking at what seems to be incoherence. And he very quickly has to rush off into metaphysical speculations about finite versus infinite objects, and somehow you can't apply this idea or this concept of numerical identity to infinite objects, such as God or such as divine persons. Look, I'm not the one putting out there these speculative claims. I'm sticking to common sense, the concepts and the knowledge that God has given to all people of sound mind, and I'm sticking to the obvious and clear teachings of Scripture as against merely inferred doctrines, which are based on doubtful 
arguments and controversial interpretations, sometimes even on controversial texts and translations. So I appreciate that Dr. Bowman is trying to be faithful to God, faithful to Scripture, but my view has a better claim to being faithful to Scripture. His view has a better claim to being faithful to small-c Catholic post-biblical traditions. My Protestant brothers and sisters, we've got to pick one or the other. This week's thinking music has been the second half of the track called Calte Oren by Alex. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.